Welcome to HealthCast, the heartbeat of health IT. I'm your host, Melissa Harris. In this third episode of our six-part National Cancer Act 50th Anniversary Commemoration mini-series, we are continuing to examine the Act's various impacts on cancer research and development, treatment, and more over the last half century. Before we dive into episode three, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to our first two episodes. The first goes into the history of the act itself, and the second highlights how treatment and diagnostics have evolved over the last 50 years. Now for this episode, we're looking specifically at health disparities with cancer. Lately, we've been hearing about health disparities through the lens of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has highlighted how underserved populations have been disproportionately impacted by the virus itself, as well as a variety of other health conditions. One of these health conditions is cancer. As you'll hear, the multiple genetic, socioeconomic, behavioral, and environmental factors that play into cancer make tackling health disparities in cancer very difficult. So let's start with where cancer research was when the National Cancer Act was passed in 1971. It was the act to win the war on cancer, but even with a new infusion of funding, there was still a number of limitations in cancer research that didn't allow us to realize disparities in cancer rates or care in underserved and minority populations. Let's hear it from Dr. Warda McCaskill-Stevens, the chief of the Community Oncology and Prevention Trials Research Group at the National Cancer Institute. Although the oncology groups were known uh, in the beginning as the corporate groups, which were the organizations that were going to conduct the clinical research, were existing at the time, uh, but were forming. But they were really restricted to the expertise of the medical oncologists. So there were very few trials and there were very few participating organizations. And specifically, there were very few academic centers. So I think one of the first things that we noted from looking back in history is that there was limited access to the clinical research that was developing at that time. Not only was research limited, but care was quite segregated as well. Many racial ethnic groups received, and even now still receive, care at safety net hospitals or in areas where specialists were limited. In some places in the country, many people still relied on house calls with their doctors too, so access and the infrastructure around equitable medical care was still very limited. The access to the developing tools were limited. So I think the second important point is where minorities and other underserved populations were getting their care was a significant disparity in terms of having access to what was actually happening at the time. On top of all of this, the report on the Tuskegee syphilis study emerged in 1972. This study aimed to observe the natural progression of syphilis when there was no known treatment at the time. The study recruited 600 African-American men in Alabama, 399 of which had latent syphilis, falsely promising free medical care for their participation. The researchers provided no effective care as the participants died or suffered severe complications from syphilis. So in addition to racial and ethnic minorities not being having access to some of the major academic institutions, these data about Tuskegee and the experiment and, uh, were evolving at that time. So we're also beginning to see mistrust in anything having to do with government research. So I think those were very, very important points that really have contributed to 
disparities that were created then and some of which exist today. There were also a number of movements happening around this time that were heightening awareness and demand for action around disparities, which highlighted the need to address health disparities across all of medicine, not just cancer. The civil rights and gender rights movements were occurring, bringing to light the variety of inequities that people of color and women encountered. As these movements pushed forward, NCI also launched its surveillance, epidemiology, and end result registries, also known as SEER registries, in 1973 to collect data on cancer. It was through these registries that NCI began seeing evidence of disparities in health outcomes and survival across racial lines. But it was between the registries and studies that began looking at differences between Black and white began to show significant uh, disparities in terms of outcome and survival. So that's how I think it really began to move. And of course, since that time, as the complexity of the country has changed, many other uh, racial and ethnic groups and underserved populations have come into play. Over time, NCI began documenting notable metrics in cancer health disparities. These include higher incidence of aggressive forms of breast cancer among African-American women, significantly higher rates of prostate cancer occurrence and death among African-American men, and higher rates of cervical cancer incidence and death among Hispanic and African-American women. And even with these noted examples, Dr. McCaskill-Stevens said cancer mortality for African-Americans is overall higher across the spectrum, with the exception of melanoma. There are certainly many factors to this. One is the connection between uh, healthcare and the referrals into the cancer system. So I think that's a structural and socioeconomic factor. Certainly there are behavioral factors that impact the risk of cancer, such as the obesity, which we see so that disparities between uh, different racial and ethnic groups. There are environmental factors. And as we have become to talk about today, certainly uh, racism has had a significant impact upon that. There, uh, as I mentioned, importantly, there are tumors that we know, 15 of them that are associated with obesity. And we know that not eating healthy foods and having access to healthy food, which may be associated with certainly obesity because you're eating foods that are high in those nutrients that lead toward our obesity. So I would think that socioeconomic factors access, I think perceptions about participating in research, I think are very important factors that contribute to this. As the data became more robust and evidence of gaps in cancer research came to light, NCI began setting up programs, offices, and initiatives to address health disparities. One of these efforts was in the founding of the Center to Reduce Cancer Health Disparities in 2001. Dr. Sonia Springfield, the director of the center, notes how it's trying to overcome challenges in cancer health disparities. Here at the Center to Reduce Cancer Health Disparities, for example, we focus on research, training, and community. We have research programs in basic cancer health disparities research. We have translational cancer health disparities programs. And we have this longstanding program, which is called the Comprehensive Partnerships to Address Cancer Health Equity. These programs are located at minority-serving institutions and our NCI-designated cancer centers. These are partnerships that address research, education, training, and actually focuses cancer health disparities research 
at our NCI-designated cancer centers. The center also has a wonderful and robust training program. It's called The Cure, the Continuing Umbrella of Research Experiences. This is a holistic program that provides support from individuals from middle school all the way to their first academic, from individuals from diverse populations as described, right? And so this program is really huge. It's holistic. It's a pipeline program. It's setting the stage for changing the demographics of the cancer workforce. We also have an intramural cure program where we're trying to change the demographics of the diversity of researchers in our intramural cancer laboratories. One of the center's big goals is to understand the needs of the communities they work with too. Dr. Springfield mentioned that there has been a history of neglect in addressing underserved communities' needs, and the center has been working to increase health research, education, and awareness in underserved communities to build access and trust. That trust element is a big component to overcoming mistrust and fear in minority populations who are hesitant to engage with the U.S. healthcare system. The first thing that we need to conquer is fear. Fear is the greatest cancer in our communities of color. And we must first address that fear with these community-based participatory research programs that will better educate provide more outreach, provide more awareness and education to our community about the importance of participating in clinical trials and not be fearful of them. See, the problem is the fear in the community. So we have to overcome that first. So understanding and overcoming the barriers in the community with education and outreach and understanding of what a clinical trial is, is absolutely important. We have to remove these barriers to early detection and screening. You know, we have to really do a better job of understanding the biology of some of the cancers experienced by these populations in jeopardy. Building trust also means building representation in research and physician communities. Dr. Springfield added that when people see doctors and scientists who look like them, it's easier to overcome fear in approaching care. Trust in our community has to begin with them seeing themselves in these positions. They have to see that the physicians are like them. The physicians are from their community. The physicians understand the problems that they are confronted with. And overcoming this fear and trust are some of the things that NCI and other NIH entities have been working on to help us address this, this breakdown in the healthcare access for our populations. On the research side, NCI has been engaging with underserved and minority populations by diversifying its clinical trials and research. A lot of this is in bringing the research to the patients, as Dr. McCaskill-Stevens said. We have had, uh, for uh, several decades now, programs that have targeted minority-serving institutions or those communities where there are large minority populations, such as the NCI Community Oncology Research Program which was the successor to the minority-based CCOPs. I think in addition to that was the entire CCOP program, which was uh, spread throughout the country and continues to be so, and that encompasses rural populations. So I think these clinical trials networks, as we partner with the NCI National Clinical Trial Network, that's treatment, has been really instrumental 
as partnerships in providing access to clinical trials. At the crossroads of building representation in clinical research and treatment teams is NCI's Equity and Inclusion Program. The NCI Equity and Inclusion Program has multiple buckets, one dealing with diversity in the workforce, disparities. They're also looking at their institutional and internal structure. You know, they're looking at, you know, the lack of diversity in leadership. So they're looking at the entire picture. And I applaud them for doing that. They're looking at ways to improve, right, the R01 portfolio and increase the diversity there. Our cancer centers are looking to see how they can do more community engagement, right? We have, we have programs that are going to be in place, hopefully, that will help our communities learn more about clinical trials. And again, to prepare individual early stage investigators to be more competitive for R01s. We're also looking at structural racism in peer review because the issue is not just that underrepresented minorities are not prepared or not competitive for R01s, but there is implicit bias in peer review. While these NCI-driven efforts have been in place, there have also been other events like the progression of technology to improve treatment and research quality and access. With remote monitoring, sensors, telehealth, and more, NCI has been able to expand the ability of rural populations and various communities to participate in clinical trials and seek care. However, it's been a delicate balance, as many underserved populations also do not have access to the devices or tools needed to take advantage of remote care and research. Providing the technology and the resources to those individuals and communities who don't have that, that's a huge barrier. You know, people will think that communities of color all have access to telephones, but that's not necessarily true. People will think that all individuals of an older demographic have access to computers, but they don't. And even if they do, they don't know how to use them. So many more efforts are in place to increase awareness, technology development, and understanding for those communities to help them have better access to treatment options, understanding what clinical trials are, the importance of being part of a clinical trial, because in order for us to understand the biology, we have to participate. Barriers in access, technologically or otherwise, are clearly still a challenge for NCI now, 50 years after the passage of the National Cancer Act. Moving forward, increasing access and affordability remains a big focus for the Institute as it tries to overcome cancer health disparities. One of the barriers that we have encountered are costs. Costs are important. Costs to the patient that you know, is not covered uh, when we ask them to participate in that clinical trial. I think that's important. We're at a very, I think, delicate time right now as we sort of are rebounding, hopefully, from COVID. So I think cost is important. I think making sure that there's coverage for all of those aspects that are required for patients to participate, I think, is a significant barrier. We still have patients that don't have access to clinical uh, research. I mean, we're 
pretty broad, but we're not perfect. So I think that's something that we need to address to see how we can reach those patients who are not. And it's not just necessarily geographic. I mean, if we look in some of our areas that are more highly dense, it's about referral. It's about engaging all oncology organizations that are seeing patients to participate in research and really stress the importance of that. It's not a concept that is uh, received and understood and respected by all Dr. McCaskill-Stevens also acknowledged that it takes doctors and professionals in a variety of medical expertise to overcome and prevent cancer, not just in oncology. So NCI is working across other institutes and groups to strengthen prevention efforts in underserved and minority communities. We know that prevention is important. Uh, We'd rather prevent a cancer than actually have it. And we know in order for us to be successful in their area, those individuals who are high, at high risk or increased risk of developing cancer are not coming to the oncologist, but we need to engage them. I think that will help because ultimately what we want to do is to reduce the incidence of cancer and to help those patients who have cancer have a better quality of life. I think one of the things moving forward that we'll, uh, we will need to address is that is to reassess our infrastructures. We have to uh, have a process that allows work to be done in a nimble manner to really accommodate new technology as we move forward. There are lots of exciting things on the horizon. This holistic approach to cancer care and research that NCI is embracing is also spreading across NIH. The institutes launched the UNITE initiative earlier this spring to combat structural racism in biomedical research, and NCI is working with the National Institute of Minority Health and other groups to increase resources and join initiatives to learn more about health disparities, both with cancer and with other medical conditions. We work also in collaboration with other NIH entities, such as the National Institute of Minority Health. We've launched a couple of joint initiatives, specifically in liver cancer and lung cancer, to address the disproportionate burden faced by our populations with this disease. And we've partnered also with professional societies. One of our biggest partners has been the American Association of Cancer Research. We have partnered with them for over 25 years, first by providing support and travel awards for individuals who are of diverse groups and populations to attend the annual meetings. And now there's special conferences. So we support scholars and trainees, and faculty to attend the meeting. We see this as an approach to really increase our pipeline of diverse trainees, you know, at the the beginning of the pipeline, if you will, to introduce them to the various mechanisms and funding opportunities that we do have for diversity training and disparities research. We partner with them on the most longstanding cancer health disparities conference. We're now going on our 14th year of understanding the science of cancer health disparities. So one thing to understand is that we can't do it alone. NCI can't do it alone. We work in partnerships and it's wonderful and gratifying to see that we're working with people that have the same goals and objectives as we do here at the NCI. Despite the barriers highlighted throughout this episode, There's clearly dedication at NCI to overcoming cancer health disparities. 
As we heard from doctors McCaskill Stevens and Springfield, the Institute has grown a lot over the last 50 years to be more mindful of disparities and to make more actionable strides and investments to overcome them. It has taken and will continue to take multi-pronged approaches and teamwork to get to more equitable cancer care and research, and it will be exciting to see how NCI evolves in the future to get there. If you've learned something today, keep in mind that we still have three more episodes on the Cancer Act coming your way this year. We're releasing the episodes in this six-part miniseries commemorating the 50th anniversary of the National Cancer Act every other month. So subscribe to HelpCast to ensure that you won't miss the next episodes, with the next one coming in late August. Thank you for listening. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris and Adam Patterson. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.